Hi there, I'm Alan Fersfeldt and you're listening to the 60th episode of the Urban Astronomer podcast. In the last episode, we interviewed Dr. Imogen Whittam of Oxford University, who studies galaxies and how they evolve over time. So that means that today we're doing one of our special patented science explainy bits. Today's question casts doubt on the confident pronouncements by astronomers and planetary scientists over the decades about what stars and planets are made from. On Earth, we send out geologists with their hammers to collect samples and bring them back to a lab for analysis. But that's obviously never happened anywhere beyond the moon. So how do we know these things? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But for now, I'd like to throw a quick shout out to an old friend, Clem Unger. Long-time listeners to the show will recognize Clem, who used to contribute sky guides and space mission updates to the show from his home in Australia. Unfortunately, he hasn't been able to join us here for what feels like years now, and so I've had to carry the show on my own. But the good news is that we've been talking, and he's very keen to come back and talk to all of you once more. I can't yet tell you what he has in mind, but I'm sure you already know that whatever it is, it'll be well-researched and super interesting, because that's just how he rolls. Now, before we cut to the science explainy bits, I'd like to remind you that while we're a proud bunch here at Urban Astronomer, we're not too proud to accept your help. And we'll take anything. Money, gifts, advice, criticism, even just reviews on podcast directories or recommendations to your friends. If you'd like to give us something and help cover the expenses of recording and hosting the show, just head on over to urban-astronomer.com and click on support the show. Or otherwise take the time to teach a friend how to install your favorite podcast app and subscribe themselves to the show. Anyway, here's the science explaining bits. If you want to know what something is made of, there are a few ways to find out. Sometimes you can just look at it or feel it and know straight away that it is made from wood or paper or metal. Sometimes it's a little harder. Perhaps you want to know the ingredients of your meal in case it triggers a food allergy. Or you need to know if a cleaning agent has a certain solvent that will damage the finish of whatever you're cleaning. Then usually you can read the label and find out. And if the label doesn't tell you and you know an analytical chemist, you can take it into the lab and let them work their magic to come back with an answer. So I think for the most part, we're comfortable with the idea of knowing what something is made from. It's not that unusual. So when astronomers like myself confidently explain that a distant nebula is made from molecular hydrogen, or that the sun contains a certain percentage of helium, or that the lakes of Titan are made from this or that mix of hydrocarbons, we accept that. But if you think about it for a while, you might wonder how? How do they know? Nobody's been to the sun and smelled it, it doesn't have a label, and I don't think we've sent a probe out to bring a sample back to the lab for proper analysis. Well, it turns out that there are a few ways. Sometimes we do actually get a sample, such as the rocks returned from the surface of the moon by the astronauts in the Apollo program, or tiny fragments of asteroid collected by Japan's Hayabusa spacecraft. And sometimes they simply fall from the sky. Chunks of rock blasted off of the surface of an asteroid or a rocky planet by a massive asteroid impact, which then drifts through space for millions of years before falling to Earth as meteors. If we're lucky enough to find them and recognize them as being different from normal Earth rocks, we can then analyze them and figure out where they came from and so get an idea of what at least one part of that planet or asteroid was made from. But the most obvious one to mention in a conversation like this one is spectroscopy. So, way back in the 17th century, Isaac Newton was playing around with prisms of glass and shining beams of light through them. Now at the time it was well known that white light is the purest form of light because it comes from the sun, which was put in place by God to illuminate the world. 
If you shine a beam of white light through a glass prism, you get a fan of rainbow-colored lights coming out the other side. And it was a bit of a mystery how clear glass could add all those colors to the pure white light when it had no color of its own. So Newton was playing around with his prisms, and he found that if he directed that rainbow fan of light into another prism and angled everything just right, you would then get white light again. And that was how he proved that white light is not in fact pure, but a mixture of colors. Now, he was a deeply religious guy and also into alchemy and various other forms of mysticism, so he immediately decided that there were seven distinct colors in that rainbow because seven is one of the important numbers in the Bible. He had to fudge the colors around a bit to get a fit, which is why we now say that rainbows have seven colors, including blue and indigo. Although indigo really is just the same shade of blue as a pair of classic blue jeans. But aside from that, he had discovered something very important. Light comes in a range of pure colors, which when combined can create new colors, and white is just one of them. Over the decades and centuries, as different scientists looked deeper into this and built on each other's work, more and more weird stuff was discovered. The different colors had different temperatures. Stick a bunch of thermometers at different colors in the rainbow coming out of your prism, and they show different temperatures, with the highest temperatures being on the red side and the coolest on the blue. And it turned out that there were even invisible colors. You take those same thermometers and move them past the red, and they heat it up even more. And that led to the discovery of infrared and ultraviolet light. And then one day somebody noticed that with a bright enough light, shaped into a narrow enough beam and passed through a good enough prism, the spectrum of colors sometimes had gaps in it, little lines of blackness. And as other scientists repeated this experiment with light coming from different sources, sometimes instead of a gap in a full spectrum of color, you got the exact opposite, thin lines of color in a field of blackness. Although I should say, it wasn't like there was a darkness projecting through the prism and casting an evil shadow on the table or anything. It just, it just wasn't lit up. And eventually it was proven that the second type, lines of light in an empty spectrum, happened whenever you heated a thin gas to the point of glowing, and the other type, gaps in a continuous spectrum, came from shining white light through a cold, thin gas. And that was weird. Nobody understood why. But it did work reliably, and that's how we then got spectroscopy, the study of spectrums. Because what this showed us was that every element in nature and every chemical compound could be made to emit a unique pattern of colors, a unique spectrum, a fingerprint of light, if you heated it up or vaporized it and heated the vapor until it glowed. And if this sounds like an exotic, dangerous lab technique, well, there's a good chance that you do it in your home every day. Fluorescent lights and compact fluorescent light bulbs work in exactly this way, by energizing a thin gas until it glows. Every time you light a candle, the flame itself is a plasma of hot gas emitting light. So if you do that and pass that light through a spectroscope, which is an instrument that improves on simple prisms uh, to split up very precisely, to split the lights up very precisely so that you can measure the colors. If you do that and record the patterns of light in the spectrum, you can then identify what the substance was. And you can do it the other way around too. Shine a bright light through a cold gas or vapor and look at the pattern of the gaps in the spectrum. Whichever way around you do it, you get the same fingerprints and the same identity. That was all very exciting and scientists started shining all sorts of light through all sorts of gases to study what they were made from. But nobody knew why it worked. 
It was turning out to be a very useful way to identify materials, but the physics behind it was still very much a mystery. So scientists spent a lot of time shining as many different types of light as they could through spectroscopes to see what they might see, to identify the signatures of more elements, and to try and figure out what made it all work. Then, in 1868, a French astronomer called Jules Janssen traveled to India to observe a solar eclipse. In the course of his observations, he looked at the sun through a spectroscope and carefully noted all the different dark lines that he could see in the sun's spectrum. One line stood out, though, because it didn't match any of the known signatures. He assumed it came from sodium because it was close to two prominent lines from that element's signature. But another astronomer, Norman Lockyer, also looked at the sun through a spectroscope later that same year, and he confirmed that this line was not from sodium. It was something new that nobody had ever seen before. He decided it must be a new element that only exists on the sun, and so he named it Helios, after the Greek god of the sun. It would be 27 years before this mystery element was discovered on Earth, and today we call it helium. It was only later still, as physicists in the early 20th century started figuring out what atoms are made from, and began laying the foundations of quantum physics, that we began to figure out why spectroscopy works, what causes those lines of dark to appear in the light, and lines of light to appear in the dark? The answer is energized electrons. See, as anybody who studied high school physics knows, atoms are made from a nucleus surrounded by swirling shells of electrons. Electrons are so small that they don't have a physical size at all. They're mathematical points, mere regions of charge, and they don't strictly exist as physical objects. And they are attracted to the positive charge of atomic nuclei, which is why a normal atom has the same number of electrons bound to it as there are positively charged protons in its nucleus. Now, one of the many strange rules of the quantum realm that defy common sense is that electrons bound to an atom have specific energy levels, and those energy levels are absolutely fixed. No electron bound to an atom can have an energy that doesn't exactly match one of the available levels. They'll always try to settle to the lowest energy level, and if that one is already full of electrons, they've got to settle for the next one up. But it's possible to pump extra energy into an electron, and if you give it the right amount, it'll jump up to the next energy level for a while, although sooner or later it'll drop back to where it really wants to be, and when it does that, it sheds that extra energy in the form of a photon. The photon will carry exactly the amount of energy that the electron got rid of, so all photons ejected by any electrons falling from one specific energy level to another specific energy level of a specific type of atom in a specific type of molecule will have the exact same energy. Now, photons are themselves dimensionless particles that exist as the embodiment of the electromagnetic force. We perceive a stream of photons as light. And as those 17th century discoveries at the beginning of the segment suggested, Different energy photons are seen by us as different colors. So, if we have a thin, rarefied gas, and if we energize it enough, perhaps by heating it up to the point that the molecules start bashing into each other violently, then some of those electrons are going to be given a kick up to a high energy level, and then fall back down, releasing the energy as a photon. And because there are different energy levels that the electrons can move between bajillions of times over and over, we'll get lights shining out of the gas at those different energies, corresponding to all the different possible combinations of energy levels that the electrons could possibly be jumping between. And when we look at this light through a spectroscope, we see those energy levels as the different lines. 
There, solved it. And the gaps in a continuous spectrum? Well, it's the same thing happening, isn't it? We've still got a gas having its electrons being kicked around, boosted up by a source of energy, only now, instead of being powered by the gas's own internal heat, it's coming from a bright white light shining through the gas. Now we've got photons of all energies tearing through this gas, and every now and then, a photon of exactly the right energy will hit an electron and be able to pop it up to an energy level, or two, or three. Now that photon is now gone, its energy has been handed over to the electron. And because this happens so many zillions of times with all the uncountable photons and electrons in any volume of gas, those specific colors represented by those particular photons become a lot dimmer, simply because so few of the photons make it through to the other side of the gas. And the result is that you get a bunch of dimmer regions in your continuous spectrum, which appear as dark lines. But they are caused by the exact same process. And so whether they are lines glowing in the dark, which we call emission lines, or lines of darkness against the light, which we call absorption lines, the lines will always be in the same place for any given substance, and we can be certain of what that substance was. Except the patterns aren't entirely consistent. The patterns themselves are fixed, but sometimes they show up in the wrong place, shifted towards the redder or bluer parts of the spectrum. And sometimes they're a bit blurred out so that they look thicker than they should, and sometimes they double up with each line appearing twice, once to the left of where it should be and once to the right. The shifting towards red or blue is probably the most familiar. Redshift happens when the source of the light is moving away from you, and the faster it proceeds, the more those distinctive lines shift towards the red. Meanwhile, an object moving towards you gets blue shifted in the same way. In fact, all of the light shifts redwards or bluewards together, but that can be hard to even notice in a continuous spectrum. But when you've identified lines that are characteristic of some element that you know is common, like, say, hydrogen, then you can easily spot when those patterns have shifted. And in fact, we can measure this extremely accurately. The radar guns that traffic cops use to measure your speed from their shady rest spot on the side of the road work by bouncing photons on the microwave band off of your car and measuring the blue shift. The relatively low speeds of cars on roads don't cause much of a shift, but it's big enough that a handheld device can measure it and calculate your speed precisely enough to satisfy a judge in a court of law. So when astronomers notice and measure that these same shifts in lights are coming from distant objects in the universe, they can very accurately calculate how fast that object is moving towards or away from us. And so spectroscopy tells us not only what an object is made from, but how quickly it's moving. It's pretty amazing if you ask me. Now, what about when you get double lines? Well, that's interesting. That can be an object that is rotating. So let's say a star is spinning around, a star is rotating. The side of the star that's moving away from you gets redshifted, and the light coming from the side that is closest to you gets blue shifted. And so you end up with both patterns overlaid on top of each other. Again, fascinating. Now we can tell how fast it's rotating. And blurred lines, well, that can happen when the gas is extremely hot or under very intense magnetic fields, which then affect the structure of the atom itself which can then affect what the actual energy levels are around that atom. And since the different atoms are affected differently depending on where they are, some will have the photons passing through different regions of the gas will be absorbed or emitted slightly different frequencies, and so you get that blurring. And so there you have it. And so it is that with a simple glass prism, you can identify not only what a distant object in space is made from, you can also tell how it's moving, and you can even tell how hot it is or measure the magnetic fields around it. And that's just the most amazing thing. Well, I hope that's cleared things up a little. 
Spectroscopy is actually a huge subject and fundamental to so many astronomical and physics discoveries of the past hundred years. Everything from the Big Bang to dark energy and the age of the universe, the evolution of stars, the nature of supernovae, all of it depends on spectroscopy. So there's a lot that I skipped and if you have any questions, please by all means drop me a mail and ask at podcast at urban-astronomer.com or just tweet me at uastronomer. Speaking of feedback, we actually got a comment on last week's episode from Frank Tippin. Frank wanted to confirm something that Imogen and I discussed about quasars, and this is what he said. Enjoyed the podcast, but you were right to ask about quasars. They were discovered by radio telescopes. Their original name was Quasi-Stellar Radio Sources. I learned about them in an introductory astronomy course in 1973. At that time, they were still a mysterious object. Yeah, thanks for clearing that up, Frank. Frank has actually responded to other episodes as well, most recently when I asked what's the deal with leap years. He explained that the difference between the two different systems for calculating the date of Easter, uh, defined by the Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches, comes about from the Orthodox churches requiring that Easter follow the Jewish festival of Passover, while the Western church wanted to decouple the two festivals for reasons of historic anti-Semitism. You can read his remarks in full at urban-astronomer.com. Just browse through the podcast archives and look for comments at the end of each episode's page. Sticking with past episodes, I did a science explaining bit back in episode 54 last season about the colors of stars. Well, a short while ago, Corey Schmitz posted a fun trick on Twitter, which made me realize I had missed something. Part of why so many people struggle to see the colors of stars is that the stars always appear as a point source of light in the sky. Because they're so far away that they appear to have no size at all, they're literal points of light. So if you want to make the color obvious, take a photo, but with the lens slightly out of focus. That way, instead of points, you get little fuzzy disks and the colors pop right out. And that made me realize that maybe the reason the colors are so obvious to me is that my eyes aren't entirely perfect. I don't yet need to wear glasses, I'm fine to read traffic signs, and I only set my ebook reader to large prints when I'm reading in dim lights, but my last eye test showed that I am very slightly farsighted and I have a bit of astigmatism. This explains why even the very best telescopes never seem to quite focus right for me, and why when I look up at the stars, they look more like little teeny tiny asterisks than points. And that could also explain why the colors are so easy for me to see, but not for other people. Anyway, we're coming to the end of this episode, so if you enjoy the show and would like to help out in some way, I'd love to hear from you. Just let me know what you liked and what you didn't like. And if you know somebody who might also enjoy listening, why not let them know about the show? If you're listening in South Africa, odds are that they don't know much about podcasts, and so you need to teach them how to set up a podcast app on their phone and search for the Urban Astronomer podcast. But you'd be doing them a big favor. Podcasts are the best thing you can do on a phone. Of course, we do accept cash as well. Just support our Patreon page or drop a small donation. All the details are on the urban-astronomer.com website behind the support the show link. Our next episode will be an interview with Julia Healy, who is working on her PhD in astronomy at two universities simultaneously, the University of Cape Town and Groningen University in the Netherlands. She's interested in the evolution of galaxies and especially how that is affected by a galaxy's local environment. And I learned a lot from her. We've gotten a little regular with our scheduling recently, so your best bet is to simply subscribe to the show in your podcast app. But if you don't use apps, and if, like many South Africans, you prefer to play these episodes directly from the website, 
we do have a subscribe by email facility. You'll find it on the show notes page just underneath the play button. When the episode comes out, you'll get an email letting you know all about it with a link to the page. Just a little convenience that we've put there to save you having to keep coming back and hitting refresh. Anyway, I hope to catch you when it comes out. But until then, enjoy the last of the clear skies before the rainy season begins. Cheers. Cheers.